Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bold, Beautiful, Borderline podcast. My name is Lori, and I am joined again by Candace Alaska, who's going to be talking about mental health effects of capitalism and oppression. Candace was on our episode last week, so you can hear a little bit more about her story there. Um, but just for some context, uh, she's coming to us from Trinidad and Tobago and is an absolutely incredible anti-oppression advocate um, around mental health. So Candace, I know that this is a topic that is incredibly important to you. So I just kind of want to give you the floor. And what do you want to talk to us about, about capitalism and oppression? Oh my gosh. Um, all right. So where do we start? <laughs> uh, oh, there's so many things. So I, uh, I think that the, probably the most important place to start is the understanding that a lot of what we're referring to as mental illness, a lot of what where we conceptualize as individual for um, individual pathology is really uh, those things are really normal responses to living under capitalism. Um, in particular, I think what frustrates me with a lot of the discourse on borderline personality disorder is that we attribute a lot of the distress that people with this diagnosis face to their personality disorder, for some good, um, instead of capitalism. When I look at it, I see so much of our distress as being the result of, of life under capitalism. So, for example, like there was this, I wish I could. I think the person's name was Jonas Attilas, and they are uh, a therapist, and they were talking essentially about a client with BPD that they had that uh, attempted suicide because they had nowhere to live, they didn't afford rent, and the mental health system was trying to attribute that, uh, the suicidality to their personality disorder, right? And I, I don't think this is an isolated event. I think this is something that happens so frequently. And I think it's very frustrating that people over and over and over the discourse on this diagnosis, I mean, mental health issues in general, but, you know, I spent a lot of my time within this diagnosis, um, the realm of this diagnosis in particular. And most of the discourse um, attributes suicidality to, uh, you know, BPD itself. And I'm not saying that like our like, internal experiences or part of histories, those kinds of things, our traumas can't be or aren't well, contributing factors as well. Absolutely. But also like not being able to have somewhere to live is, I'd say, a pretty big contributing factor. And so many people with this diagnosis uh, that I know are people who struggle financially because they struggle to work within this economic system. And so that means that they have to, they're forced to live with people, like live in unsafe or unhappy uh, environments. Maybe you live with the same people who originally caused you harm and things like that. And I, I like that will absolutely cause anybody to be, like, I think it's completely normal to be suicidal in situations like that, where you're still living with the people who originally caused you harm. Um, and, you know, I'm in Trinidad, Tobago, so in particular, in a country like this, we have so many, um, like, there's so many contributing factors that can, that can, yeah, lead to suicidality. There's poverty, like I said, and there's crime, and there's, you know, there, there is uh, unemployment, and, you know, if somebody has a BPD, a borderline personality disorder diagnosis, and they attempt a suicide, they die by suicide, it's going to be chalked up to their borderline personality disorder diagnosis, which is deeply frustrating. And it's how the system is, is 
are able to evade accountability for the harm and destruction that it causes. Yeah, that's super interesting. And we've heard, we have heard from people on this podcast and in our super feelers club, that exact example of like, I live with my abuser because I don't have a choice. And I mean, obviously a very different context, but uh, in Vancouver, where I live outside of Vancouver, but in Vancouver, housing prices are just like absolutely crazy. And like the lack of ability to find housing is really bad. And I have no doubt that that contributes to people's suicide. I feel like I've been there where I've just been like, what's the point? There's literally no way this was before, but like, there's literally no way that I can afford to live and what life, what is life if I can't afford like food and a roof over my head, what's the point? And, and I live in like a major developed country (laughs) with, you know, a lot of support. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, absolutely. That resonates so much. And, you know, I'm guessing that if you had attempted uh, suicide, then they would have probably said, hey, it's a personality disorder. <laughs> oh, 100,000%. Yeah, no question. No question. So, and, and actually, it's really interesting. We have a um, kind of a debate going on in Canada right now. Um, we have medical assistance in dying, which is like, yeah euthanasia whatever I don't know what it's called down there but I'm like personally I think it's amazing but it's pre it was previously just for people who who were like medically really close to death anyway like physically ill um and they're they're changing it um potentially to including people with mental health issues and there's a lot of people who live with like long-term disabilities mental health issues that are like yeah great like perfect I'll, I'll do that <laughs> because I don't have the support that I need. I don't have appropriate housing. I'm, I can't be employed because of whatever disability that I have, blah, blah, blah. Like I'll take that option. And it's like, well, there's a big debate around whether or not the government should be like, even allowing that when it's really the government's fault for not providing those things for those people in the first place. Oh my gosh, yes, absolutely. I remember reading about this a while ago and I think uh, there's a boost on here, um, just like you you said, in that I understand that it will bring a lot of relief to a lot of people, which is wonderful. It's, it makes sense, again, you know, when we understand, when we contextualize suicide as, as a response to having unmet needs uh if you are struggling with housing and all these kinds of things like basic fundamental human needs then this is going to bring a lot of relief right but then also it means that the government like this is not like this is their response right this is not just their we should see this as not just a response to suicide this is their response to housing crisis and and yeah exactly Exactly. And, and essentially that is what their response is. This is a response to the care crisis where the care is scarce for people with long-term conditions and things like that. And that's, I think, the scary and, and infuriating part of it. Uh, somebody pointed out, somebody in the disability community pointed out that this is essentially a form of eugenics, right? Uh, and that something like, like, like services like this, while helpful, um, they should not, like, if you're going to if you want to help people who are suicidal, then funding services, resourcing services, like these should not be the only option. You should also resource the services that help connect people to 
the basic needs that are going unmet. So there's this both and about it, and it's it's mm-hmm. deeply frustrating. And and then it's just like happening, you know, just you know, just casually in plain sight. And yeah, it, <laughs> it is. And it is. Yeah, and like that's the thing is, if people want to choose the option of getting medical assistance and dying, that's I'm a hundred percent. I will back you up forever. Um, but the issue is, is it really a choice at that point? If it's your only option, which anyways, that that's like kind of a tangent. That's like maybe a little bit political, but imagine possibilities far outside of the one that we currently have. And so part of it is about like, yes, being able to access basic needs, but it is also going to take like abolition. That's going to take, like, we have to understand it as a change in relationships as well so this is also a fundamental part of it because we do live in a society that is you know very hyper individualistic and uh moving outside of this current system this current economic system is going to change and well it should it has to change the tapestry of our relationships meaning that we need to move away from this individualistic this hyper individualistic way of being and so part of abolition is about how can we build new relationships with one another as well, right? Um, and those relationships also are ways of getting our needs met, of um, imagining care in different ways. So I think, I know that, you know, I think sometimes people, oh, I don't know how to phrase it. I think like it, it's so much more than just um, like an economic system is going to be changed, but it's going to change the ways that we relate to one another as well. It will change our values. Um, and things like that and well and the yeah. entire political the entire political system would need to change absolutely because, yeah. because the people who are keeping individuals without that level of financial security down are the people who have that level of financial security what so they have no obviously this is generalizing they have no motivation to make major changes like this because it doesn't affect them Absolutely. Yes. Yes. You know, for me, I think one of them, like, I think this is a part of it that I focus on the most, <laughs> that this is a part of it that, that gets me like, um, really, I guess, excited for a world like this, but also just very, like this grief <laughs> that we aren't living in this world. And to me, it is how we, we are going to be in relationship to one another. And I just think that like, for me, that is going to be the most, um, I don't know significant aspects of this because we like how we are right now like this this the super individualistic way of being means that care is seen as a scarce um resource right which is again as we were talking about made we um a few moments ago this is part of why uh services like these uh become so necessary like if people had more routine access to care things would be so much different for disabled people or for people who can't um who struggle to work under the system and to me uh, a different way of being with one in relationship with one another means that we like care is normal like care is much more easily accessible and to contextualize that a little bit like in terms of let's say bpd like if you feel unsafe or you feel like you're in crisis or whatever it is not going to be like um, there's nobody necessarily to turn to or you know um, support is scarce it, it's going to be more like 
okay, how can we help to meet uh, those fundamental needs of like those needs that are going unmet, right? Um, I don't need to just rely on like a partner or um, any other relationship that we've been told, like this is where you should get those needs met, but we are more likely to meet needs in community instead. I just like, I, I wish for that all very deeply. I think so many of us have been quite left behind. Um, and dismantling capitalism to me is going to be about bringing like, breathing any world into life where we don't feel so left behind with, with the most vulnerable and disadvantaged of us. Um, yeah, like there, there's care, you exist, <laughs> you know, um, and you know that you're worthy, that there's a sense of like you belong here because people are showing up for you um, and your inability to thrive and to make it in, in this world is not a reflection of you. We understand it as a reflection of systems that have failed you. It's just... So what is one or two things that listeners of this podcast can do right now in their own lives to help with this anti-capitalist kind of need for change? Oh, I think education, I think is, is the most important thing. I think a lot of people have so many like have good intents have good intentions and I think like education is is so necessary um and it's a process like for me it's still a process and uh education on like who is the most disadvantaged by capitalism and what narratives have I come to believe about people who are um disadvantaged by the system who are unable to partake in it and all of these kinds of things what narratives have i have i been taught about people like that like so you know unemployed people people who are homeless and, and things like and and in all of these um, similar types of situations what narratives have i been taught that have been beneficial to the system and, and so education i think is so important it's it's remarkable how we have learned all of these different ways of seeing uh one another uh seeing different populations because it was beneficial to this the system and i think the second thing would be about intentionally like again to me i think this is just so important because this is literally how we keep one another alive while these systems continue trying like preying on on the most um and the most vulnerable of us, and that is uh, showing up for one another differently, like consciously examining how my values reflect values of like uh, hyper individualism, and then examining how can I move to collectivist, uh, more collectivist values. What what would that look like? Um, even in my life right now, like what would it look like to shift my values uh, and and build community and build like care webs and. Uh, you know networks of mutual aid and things like that like those are the things that are going to keep us alive while like going to help us survive um while we work towards like more long-term change uh and so like it really does not have to be like wide sweeping things that we do but it is also how, it is about how we show up um in, in just in our in our daily lives that's super helpful thank you that's always where my brain has a hard time like connecting action in this space. So capitalism is huge. What are the other forms of oppression that you are really passionate about that you think impact mental health? Oh, I think, well, I think that we, we, I mean, there's so many that we could talk about, um, but there are some that I, 
I suppose that I am much more passionate about and I also know quite a lot more about because I have unfortunately lived experience of them. <laughs> you know, ableism is a huge one. Ableism and capitalism are so inextricably linked for anyone who has a BPD diagnosis with these experiences. It's a system that has impacted us so much. Can you talk a little bit about that link between ableism and capitalism? Sure. Um, I hope I can do like an eloquent you know, job off the top of my head, but I will say like capitalism would not exist without the, the not just the oppression of disabled people and the, dispos- the disposability of disabled people, but also without the idea of there being an ideal and normal body and mind. Because the ideal unnormal body and mind is the is the ideal liberal. Um, and ableism, as we know, is, is inextricably linked from capitalism. And so, you know, for example, capitalism does not recognize bodies and minds and the diversity of bodies and minds as being natural. It recognizes bodies as machines. You know, it's... If, like, yeah, we're only as valid as our ability to contribute to the economy, essentially. Oh my gosh, yes. And, you know, our bodies are natural living you know breathing things they are they are machines to get things done you know I was thinking today I had a session today with someone and you know I was thinking about like so much of like um working with people with with like complex trauma and with BPD it's not just about modality it's about like you know access to your your regulated nervous system essentially and and I was just thinking wow what what a thing it is that I can offer this to people because a few years ago quite a few years ago I remember I my nervous system was so heavily dysregulated like I was on psych medication trying to like I guess repair it I didn't know what I was doing I didn't know what to do but I was in distress I was also working full-time at that point in time for a company that was super exploitative like they like I worked so hard and they took so much out of me and it dysregulated my nervous system so much and to this day like yeah I mean like it just there's just a change now like I'm just not who I used to be and I think about like how important it is for us to understand that capitalism literally encourages disembodiment because for us to be in our bodies and to be present in them it's it's going to be really difficult if we are pushing past our cues of cues from our bodies uh and and, and ignoring cues for like rest um and, and things like that which is essentially what i had to do and what a lot of us have to do so it is so incapacitable like like capitalism is so incapacitable in so many ways with healing right because like healing from complex trauma is often about being able to re-inhabit our bodies and for me that has been such a huge part of my recovery and I could not do it working the way that capitalism wanted me to full-time for someone else I just couldn't do it um it was it was incompatible and I think about like um how exhausting that is and just how just how ableist it is to assume that there are certain bodies and minds that are more um, or to assume one way of our body and mind working um, because it is most profitable, right? Um, yeah, I, I may have like slightly gone off on a tangent, but essentially, like it is like how we conceive of disability is just so closely related to how capitalism teaches us to think about people who um who cannot function under it, and and it also like a lot like it also encourages us to think about people who cannot partake in it as 
um, yeah, as less worthy and not only less worthy as human beings, but less worthy of care. So we find that after a while, kids kind of drops by, um, you know, for people who are chronically ill and, and disabled, care is, is not a long-term um, thing because we exceptionalize um, like long-term distress, long-term illness, long-term um, differences are exceptionalized under capitalism. Um, you know, uh, I think I, I'm, I'm trying to like, like there's this wonderful quote by um, this disability advocate. Um, I, I think I can actually pull it up now. Um, and in a, they say, their name is Joanna Hedford. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And they say, quote, sickness as we speak of it today is a capitalist construct as is a perceived binary opposite wellness. Under capitalism, the well person is the person well enough to go to work. The sick person is the one who is not well enough to go to work. What is so destructive about this conception of wellness as the default, as standard mode of existence, is that it invents illness as temporary. When being sick is an abhorrence to the norm, it allows us to conceive of care and support in the same way. And like that just end quote, and that just resonates so much. And it also is very infuriating because. Because yeah, it, it just it, it's so infuriating for those of us who have not been able to have that care that we deserve. Um, you know, because disability is not like maybe we don't seem disabled enough, right? Because unquote, we don't seem um like there's nothing wrong with you and you should be able to to work, right? So totally. And and like the fact that I'm sure a lot of people would be totally happy to go to work if they were able to. It's just the fact that they literally can't because they don't have the support for their mental and physical health or other, or other social supports. I mean, even like parents, I don't know about for you guys, but up here, like trying to send a kid to daycare almost costs as much as just going to work every day. So like, you may as well just quit your job. Right. Like, and, and there's this whole thing about like, well, is that fair? Like, you know, if we want to have more women in the workforce and that kind of thing, like why, why do we have daycare that costs more than a salary? which anyways, that's kind of another side note, but wondering about racism and sexism in Trinidad and Tobago and how you use an intersectionality lens to encompass those, if at all. Yeah. Um, for, so for example, like, like, oh my gosh, this is a deeply misogynistic society. Um, and I mean, like, not to paint us, depict us in a, in a negative light. Like I do, like this is my country and this is, you know, this is a place that is a part of me. But, uh, and and of course, like uh, these values aren't specific to us, but it does inform a lot of the ways that a lot of these, a lot of the trauma uh, that, that people are dealing with. So for example, there's so much intimate partner violence and there's so much sex, um, sexual and physical violence in our country. So I, like, a lot of the traumas that we're dealing with, or a lot of the things that are manifesting as as mental health issues, mental illness, even borderline personality disorder, uh, a lot of these things, they're, they're so much, they're so heavily informed by uh, these patriarchal values that manifest themselves into forms of violence. And again, you know, this is what happens when we individualize issues that have roots in much larger contexts is that we only treat the individual. So, you know, I see people, for example, who have a BPD diagnosis and they, you're going to just treat the BPD, like the individual as though there's something, you know, like 
you know, probably BBC, what have you, but we're not going to look at, okay, what was the violence that you experienced in your home, right? And what was the violence that you experienced uh, in later relationships? And how did that impact your well-being? How did that impact your mental health? How did that cause a trauma that you're suffering from today? And, um, and when we look to those forms of violence, then what, what, for example, what values, what social norms led to this violence and we don't do that we don't investigate like uh, a lot of what we individualize as as mental illness we don't investigate how our culture um is is continually showing up uh in in these in the perpetuation of these these forms of distress and like and i'd say this as well for like colonial trauma i i think like so much of what people in this country in Trinidad and Tobago are, are suffering from is you know um trauma from our ancestors who survived who endured quite a lot uh under colonization and it sounds i know for a lot of people it sounds outrageous maybe or maybe on an instinctive level it resonates and it's like huh maybe maybe that is true i have thoughts about that i have thoughts about what my ancestors went through my great great so you know um grandparents and so forth um what did they go through uh as you know indentured laborers for example i i think about what my grandparents went through i i don't quite know <laughs> i don't know but i i i do know that i i am i don't think a lot of that trauma got processed in their lifetime and i think like it, it like so it passed on intergenerationally and i think that what that a lot of what we're talking about like calling bpd today um in this country and a lot of like the trauma that manifests in in aggression and violence and so much of what we're dealing with is uh is partially unprocessed traumas from generations ago uh so that that is one one thing that i think about christ a lot like are we gonna be the generation that finally starts and that's a lot of trauma right that is quite a lot to carry because you're talking about ancestral trauma you're talking about ongoing traumas you're talking about attachment trauma so that's quite a lot for any individual and i think like hats off to you for surviving Um, yeah like you can't you can't solve that in one generation but you can (laughs) you can sure like try to to at least stop like the continuation of that intergenerational spread to the best yes, of your ability no. but again you I, need support for that and if you're not able to get the support then that's not on you absolutely like oh there's this duality of it right so we want to make sure we don't spread it to the next generation but at the same time you know and and um you know i think about what Rosemary manakim says about intergenerational trauma which is that the more like i eat with each generation it intensifies and so when we think about it like that, it's quite a lot that we're dealing with. I'm sure, like if, if we were resourced, if we were able to have that support to process it, like it would make such a make such a huge difference for us as individuals for the next generation, but also collectively, like it could make such a huge difference uh, to our country. And you know, going beyond that, obviously, like we could apply this to you know the so-called US and Canada, like to these to all of these places, like healing, like uh, so much. Co- there's so much potential for collective change um on an individual level but we have to understand as how the individual how uh, our individual suffering is linked to the collective for us to even get to that place but yeah going back to your original question about how like sexism and things like that play out like they absolutely do in 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 our country and and it, it just it, again it just goes so unaddressed like we keep treating symptoms over and over and we, we are not looking to what's um 
we keep treating symptoms and perpetuating the root causes of, of them simultaneously, which is just such a, a wonderfully interesting um, dynamic. Absolutely. I, well, I feel like this conversation, we could probably talk about this like for 12 years. So <laughs> just wondering, um, before we wrap up, do you have any final like thoughts or advice or anything that you'd want our audience to know about this? I think that I'd like um, for people to move past seeing individuals as the only level, the individual level as the only level that we treat suffering and distress on and to start looking at other levels. And I would like for us to interrogate like, how we can use individual suffering, individual distress and individual illness as uh, portals for larger social and collective change. Uh, uh, you know, in uh, the many indigenous cultures, for example, non-Western cultures who that saw illness as uh, an opportunity to address um, something that was wrong in the community instead of just um, at the individual level. And this is something, of course, that's, that's missing in, our, in Western society. And so when we're, when we're looking at, again, we're speaking so much about BPD and, and so specifically when it comes to BPD, I'd like to ask people, what can BPD teach us about what's wrong in our society? Like specifically where you are um, and even on a global level, what can a diagnosis of BPD teach us about what we need to change? Wow, that is such a powerful way to end. Thank you so much for joining us, Candice. It's been an absolute pleasure and I'm so glad that we were able to connect and that you were able to bring all of your amazing wisdom onto the podcast. So thanks for being here. Thank you. I had such a great time being on the podcast. Um, And yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. Anytime. I'm I'm sure you'll be back because we could talk about this forever. So thank you. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold, Beautiful Borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey, and we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about Borderline and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you, and we'll see you next time.